It's important as a curious human who cares about human evolution to understand human variation. One of the basic principles of natural selection is variation, right? You have variation, you have differential selection. You have variation among individuals. That is the grist for the mill of evolution. You also have variation between sexes, which is quite interesting, and people write books about it and talk about it. There are also human population differences, obvious differences in phenotypes. I mean, if you look at skin color or hair texture or face structure, they're obviously different. People aren't inventing these differences, right? They're quite evident. So if you're a curious person who cares about human evolution and human evolutionary psychology, you have to address human variation, honestly. You simply cannot understand the world if you don't do that. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Asher. With me is Ricky Allpike. Ricky, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I, I, well, am I good? I, I, I fear that that we're going to get cancelled. Well, <laughs> only talk I, I've had you. this fear. I've had this fear before, but I think this. You this know, is it. I think I think it's going to happen. It's been nice knowing you. Well, it has been good. Um, and yeah, I just want to thank you for all all the good times. But uh, in the meantime, um. We have a guest today now. Bo Weingard's here to talk to talk to us. But we talked about a lot of great things. We had a we had a rollicking time. Uh, we talked about academic freedom, kids cancellation, some movie talk in there, and a little bit of of uh, his research uh, area. One of his research areas. And all I'll say is, look, I mean, it's hard to know what to say because I think yeah, I think you just have to tell people. You say, look, you know. If you if you go past this point, then you you gotta have an open mind. You gotta listen and don't clip it up. Don't clip up that little bit. There's one bit that you're gonna want to clip up. <laughs> fight the urge and just listen to it. It's an entirety, and uh, then you know make your own mind up. Say, what do I do? I agree. I don't know. You know, have a think about it. And if you really have to get your pitchforks out, go after Bo. Not, not John and I. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. Uh, then, then the excuse could be, "Look, oh, he's all. Come on, he's already cancelled. It's what's the difference? Yeah, you know, yeah, we, yeah. We, you know Well, not... you platformed him, right? And I'm like, yeah, but you, know. you didn't push back hard enough, right? Yeah, push back. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, yes, this is this is a good one. Uh, everyone, you'll enjoy it, unless you won't. Well, if we still exist here next week, you can leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you liked or perhaps one that you didn't. This one. Oh, yeah, this one. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated. And now, on with the show. Bo Weingard is the executive editor of Aporia magazine. He received his PhD in social psychology from Florida State University. Bo was a professor teaching at Marietta College before his controversial research area got him fired from academia, which I'm sure we'll get into. Bo, welcome to the New Flesh. Hi, thanks for having me. So first things first, Bo, I just discovered that you are a Clint Eastwood fan. I, I Very much know, so, yes. I need to know more. Tell, what's your favorite era of Clint? Oh, that's a great question, actually. I, I, you know, I have like multiple, it's like 
what era of Shakespeare do you like? I have multiple. <laughs> but about, um, I'd be surprised if you said, oh, I really love the late stuff. I really love Richard Yeah, Gould, okay. So like I love the Jersey Boys, you know. Post-2010, like, I think he declines. Although even Mule, I believe, was watchable. Um, I probably like that run of High Plains Drifter, uh, Pale Rider, and Outlaw Josie Wales. So those are three films he directed that are all very interesting. And then you couple that with like the the Man with No Name trilogy. And that's probably my favorite Clint. But I think I think Unforgiven is his best film. It's his most contemplative. It's beautiful. It's philosophically interesting. Um and Gran Torino might be the most fun to watch. That just tells me so much about you. I know so much about you already. Uh, but I think we should come or put it on table. Ricky, what's your favorite, Clint? Come on. Uh, I, I do have a soft spot for Magnum Force. and uh, Right. Really? And, 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 and the Bridges, Bridges of Mar Madison County. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, I do love Dirty Harry, the, the first one. I think each one sort of declines in quality until what's the last one? It's Deadpool. been so long. Deadpool is is that the one with the mini car that they chase the yes, car around Jim with? Jim Carrey yeah. and Liam Neeson in it as well. Yeah, so 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 that the the mini car I think is amusing. I haven't seen that one in quite a long time, but I do I do like the original Dirty I Harry. I think quite you know we, this is one area, before we get into all the areas that we know nothing about. Uh, this is one area that perhaps we can weigh in on, and I think Ricky's correct. Magnum Force is superior to. Uh, the original Dirty Harry, and I think you should reinvest. In that is a bold. <laughs> that is a bold claim. You know what? I I watched a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw this. I did. I mentioned this on. Maybe it wasn't on that thread, but I watched um, Don Siegel's Escape from Alcatraz. Oh yes. With Eastwood. yes, yeah. I was incredibly impressed with it. It, it scary. actually. <laughs> it's a tense. Yeah, it's very scary. It holds up well, though. I mean, I mean, I thought like, wow, this seems like a very modern movie i mean the 70s were this is my favorite area or era of film just the films hold up so well and are are interesting and dark golden age and it's undisputed golden yeah. age and and it bears yes, it, it's worth saying that it bears absolutely no resemblance to what we're what we're doing right now on the on the in the art scene. <laughs> do you think yeah. do you think America could do with kind of a resurgence of sort of law and order cinema like like you saw in in the Dirty Harrys? Yeah, that's interesting, right? That you did get that period from I don't know when it started. Maybe maybe like the early seventies through. Like um, you got um, Death Wish. I don't know if you're familiar with those death movies. Wish. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like the 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 first Death Wish. I was actually surprised. It's a very well made, you know, sort of clumsily didactic film, but it's still well made and, and worth watching. Um, you know, you had the French Connection during that period. I'm trying to think of all these, but yeah, I I admired those films, and I think they do tell you something about the culture and about real concern of crime and how how important that was to people and how afraid they were of what was happening to cities. I, I would like to see that. I, I don't expect it to happen since obviously Hollywood is dominated by liberal to progressive types. And maybe you can find it in, you know, indie streaming movies or whatever. I mean, the thing is, I don't, I love cinema, but I, it's so hard to pay attention to modern cinema because it's, it's dominated by the Marvel 
and what's the other D- DC universe is mm. like you just make yeah. these constantly. And then when you when you look at like streaming, you know, movies that go to Netflix or Prime doesn't do it so much anymore. But like there are just too many of them, you know. Yes. And I'm like, I have hundreds of movies from the past that I could be watching that I know are masterpieces. So why am I going to invest? In, you know, You're talking our language, absolutely talking our language. Well, uh, we will have to leave uh, cinema there for the moment unless it comes up organic. That's unfortunate because I never get to talk about film, and it's like one of my great loves. You need in to life. come on the show. We, we talk about cinema a lot. Actually. <laughs> oh, okay. So we should set up a whole Eastwood podcast. Uh, look, I got to before we leave. Clint, I'm going to say that my favorite Clint is without a doubt in the line of fire. I haven't seen that. It's a true story. I literally watched the Siskel and Eber review of that film this morning. I like to watch these old Siskel and Eber <laughs> reviews. What they would say. It's a because I, thriller. They both liked it. Clint is they back. both liked He's it. He's lean and mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think they really liked the John Malkovich character in that movie. Uh, I haven't seen that though since I was in like high school, so I, I can't comment. Absolutely stands on it. up, and that's my recommendation uh, for okay. this week. Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say. So let's dive into it, Bo. We, we, we're going to talk. We got a lot of interesting topics we'd like to cover today, and not in uh, all the, the depth that I know you would like. Uh, uh, we're going to do a, bit, a little bit of uh, biodiversity, some immigration, and but perhaps we need to just quickly cover some of your origin story for the benefit of our audience. You're probably sick and tired of, of talking about your your, your cancellation, uh, uh, but but maybe you could tell. It did happen, so it, it's fine. It did happen. Maybe you could tell <laughs> us. So maybe start by you know what you taught at at uh, Marietta College and and for how long you were there. Uh, I taught. So every class I taught was some version of a psychology class. I think I taught social psychology, general psychology. Um, I actually, uh, evolutionary psychology, and then I was lucky enough to introduce a behavior genetics course, which was pretty cool. But then I got the, my favorite class. I got to teach my second year. There was, um, it was something, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it was basically like human nature. And we used film, poetry, and short stories to explore human nature. So that that allowed me to um, explore my love of literature in the classroom and and cinema. Um, so, but everything was related to psychology. And I was there for, I guess, a very ephemeral. <laughs> it was a transitory two year <laughs> stay. It was not a long lasting performance. So what, what was teaching life like on campus before you got hauled in to receive your, your, your talking to from the administrative establishment? You know, was there a culture of fear around academic freedom? So, yeah, it's interesting because obviously other people, you know, other professors with whom I was acquainted were worried, not at Marietta, but in many other places. At Marietta, actually, like in the classroom, it was excellent. I never had complaints from students, not, not one, like even at Florida state. So I taught at Florida state as a grad student because you could teach your way and get some money. I taught a lot of classes at Florida state and they they went quite well, but I, every semester I'd get like one criticism, like, Oh, he's, I don't know, sexist, or he thinks they're sexist, you know, something like that, which, you know, in a class of 250 people, it's going to happen. It's not, it doesn't concern me too much, but 
I didn't have anything like that at Marietta. The students there were great. Uh, there was, you know, there were other, a few other conservative professors. And I should say, I'm, I think, as you would probably know, I'm sort of a heterodox conservative of sorts, but I think conservative's the best label for me. Um, and they would talk and they were, they didn't like what was happening. I don't think they were too worried about on campus at Marietta. I mean, most of the professors were obviously on the left too progressive as was the, the small bureaucracy we had. And in fact, somewhat fortuitously and like, I almost want to say ironically, I was put on the, um, the diversity uh what 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 do you call these things the um, you know how you pardon the the the, the diversity star chamber it, yeah basically <laughs> like you know how you, you essentially you have to do service for the university and you get every, every semester you get put on like a different committee i somehow my first semester there i landed on the diversity committee <laughs> so that was that was like an alien world so there i was I, I felt completely stifled, but I just, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I go to these meetings an hour a week. Yeah. This stuff is absolutely bizarre and crazy, but I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. It was my first semester. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to make a lot of waves here. Right. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it honestly wasn't that bad. I didn't feel, it didn't feel coercive or anything. I, I taught what I wanted to. I mean, I didn't, I don't bring a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of these outside interests into the classroom. I, I, I would say one thing I'm proud of is that students who don't talk to me outside of the classroom would have no idea what my views about the world are, right? Just like no clue. Um, that's that's uh, the same with uh, one of our, our favorites is Norman Finkelstein, and he says the same yeah, thing. Exactly yeah, exactly. And actually, I'm a, I'm a fan of Finkelstein's as well. Um, and yeah, exactly. That's something that was important to me. Now, if somebody wants to talk to me outside of class, a student does, I I'm happy to talk about my personal views. I just don't want them to play any role in the class. And in fact, I, I actually enjoy, like I taught, I don't know if it was my first semester or second semester, I taught a sex and gender class and I used Geary, David Geary's textbook, male, female, which is an evolutionary approach to sex differences. And there I did, like, I think my views inevitably would come out. So I was just kind of open. Like, I'm like, look, I take an evolutionary approach here. I think there's a lot to be said for this. I revere David Geary. But if you disagree with me, I, I'm happy about that. I encourage you to disagree with me and to write a paper. Make your argument. It's not, I'm not going to grade you. Even if I vehemently disagree with your view, it's not going to affect your grade. The only thing that's going to affect your grade is your argument. And so, yeah, so in general, I mean, I guess the point is no, I, I liked my students and I liked what I was doing there. And even the last, I mean, when I, after I got fired, you know, I, I think the students must have seen it on Twitter or I, I wrote the article about it. I, I got, a deluge of emails just like sorry what happened this sucks like like my students seem to quite like me and and they were quite upset about that well but perhaps you could give us a quick blow by blow of of what led to to you getting uh, let go from your job uh because i've i've it's one of those things where i've heard you explain it and i've read it but 
I can't just like any a, a lot of things in this crazy time we're living in. You you hear it and you're like, what? Like there's something that doesn't quite get it doesn't quite add up. Imagine you know how I, mean? I felt when it happened. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. It was I was listening to a pod today where you you outlined that very moment where because you were totally blindsided, right? What what led up to this blindsiding moment? I I, I mean I I don't when it finally happened. I, it was a blind side because I, I thought, well, let me just go through it then instead of describing that. So what happened was, I now I had even talked to all of the professors there and told them, here are my articles on human variation. This is something about which I'm interested. I don't bring it into the classroom because it's not relevant to the topics I'm teaching. But, you know, this is a controversial topic and people assail me online and this is something, you know, we have to talk about. Nobody had a problem with it. Nobody expressed concern to me. So the first year was perfectly fine. The second year, I got invited by this person to go to Alabama, which is a R1 university, to give a talk on something related to evolution. Like it was an evolutionary psychology group. And I asked him, because I was... I was trying to write a paper on human variation. It was going to be like, you know, my final statement is what I was thinking at the time. Like, okay, I'm going to write all of this in this paper. This will be interesting and cool. I'm going to see if I can get this published in like a mainstream journal. So I asked him, I said, you know, I'm writing this paper. So can I do something that's germane to the paper? That way I can kind of double up, right? Because I don't want to do something completely different. He was like, yeah, fine. So I even sent him the, uh, the PowerPoints. And he was like, yeah, this is fine. So, okay. I get there. And the second day I'm there, none of the professors will meet with me. And I was supposed to have a meeting with the students and I went into the room and nobody was there. And I was like, am I in the wrong room? Um, what's going on here? And, he, and the guy who was my guide, he was also baffled like he was like i don't know what's going on and it's then nightmare already, by the way the only thing missing is that you're in your underwear do you know what i mean like this is one of the a nightmarish dream like where it, it like was it was it was almost kafka-esque because it was actually like more it was weird right it's like wait what what's going on here and then especially like he showed me like there are all these emails going back and forth between professors and students about how I'm a white nationalist, he's a white supremacist, look at his rat wiki page, uh, you know, just insults and, and making claims that were patently untrue because they saw it on a website, which is an absolutely, you know, like at best tendentious, at worst slanderous website. And it was just, it was utterly befuddling to me. And I was like, well, why don't, why don't some of these professors meet with me and we can talk about it? Like whatever their concerns are, I understand that we can have a conversation like civil scholars, you know, <laughs> um, but nobody would only one professor ended up meeting with me, I will say. And, and he, he was actually uh, nice about it. And he actually went to my talk. So I give him credit. Nobody else would meet with me. But they didn't cancel my talk. And I was like, I'm going to the talk. Like I, ha I had this idea that it was my duty to give this talk. And I was like, okay, either I'm going to go to my talk and the room's going to be empty 
in which case, whatever, I'll just give my talk. And I was thinking about, um, I don't know what you guys think of Noam Chomsky, but Chomsky talked about how when he, when he first started giving these talks against the Vietnam War, he would go and there'd be like three people there and like two people yelling at him. <laughs> so I was kind of imagining it might be like that. But to my surprise, there were actually a lot of people there. And you could tell that they were quite animated and they, they were sort of like... Uh, uh, hungry animals waiting to leap upon me when, when the time was right. Uh, but I was like, okay, whatever, I'm doing this. You know, I'm going to give this talk and I'm going to sit here and defend myself all the way through. So I gave my talk and actually, to their credit, nobody interrupted my talk. So I was allowed to give my talk to a silent room. The second the Q&A started, though, things got fiery. And it revealed to me the ignorance of most of these students, which was unfortunate, but I suppose it's, you know, you can kind of see this when you watch these other videos, just how uh, nescient the students are, but how arrogant and, and certain and this attitude of infallibility, because they were asking me these questions that were just completely ridiculous. Like, this guy, one guy be, was obsessed with this idea that I was promoting phrenology. And he kept asking this over and over. And I'm like, I don't know how to tell you that sorting skulls by race is not phrenology, right? <laughs> like, at any rate, though, whatever, you know, 20-year-olds are going to be 20-year-olds. It's not like, it's not a personal, it doesn't, feel like a personal attack on me. I understand that. I was 20 once. I was you know, motivated by the desire to make the world a better place, etc. And I probably thought a bit too much of my erudition and intelligence at that time as well. But anyway, some people yelled racist at me. And then so I, I, I tried to answer these questions. You know, the audience was utterly impervious to what I was saying. It was evident to me, but I still tried. And then they came up to me even after the Q&A ended. And it's just like this line of students, each one talking to me, beseeching me to stop my racist research, <laughs> telling me Hitler, you know, this is what Hitler supported, uh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, it was an unfortunate experience. But and, and, and Bo, what, what, what was the topic of this talk that you gave? It was, yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I should have made that clear. It was the evolution of human variation. It, it didn't even examine the most taboo, the most sort of incendiary of all the topics, namely IQ. It just, it, it just argued that it, it's reasonable to propose that there are differences among, I called them populations at the time. I didn't want to use the term race because, you know, then you get in a debate about what race is. There are differences among populations and some percentage of those differences, some of the variation is genetically caused. That's it. I mean, it was a very, I would say it was a very tame talk. And, and, and by the way, it was a talk because this is something that I, I'm still a little bit most of the experience is like, whatever, you know, I expect these things to happen. One of the things I was apoplectic about is that the group that invited me then assailed me after I left and they apologized for me, but they, which is fine. Okay, whatever. They're groveling apology, you know, whatever. But they assailed the talk for being what they said, quote unquote, unscientific. 
And it's, it wasn't, I mean, I could send this to anybody and ask, I was like, I asked the person, you, you claim this is unscientific. Can you point to the unscientific proposal I made in the talk? And of course, no answer. So that was very irritating because this was a tame, very straightforward and should be uncontroversial talk. At any rate, all of this happens fine. Then the paper there, the student paper, I think one of the people from the student paper went to the talk and he came and talked to me and he was cordial enough. And I guess I was naive at the time because I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll just talk to this guy. You know, I'll give him an interview or whatever, and I'll give him my materials and he'll write up a fair story. Of course, that's not what happened. He wrote this, you know, tendentious story. Uh, it, you know, it did the, um, quoting but not citing the source so it'd be like some people say this is eugenics and it's like well who says it and That's is it otherwise why do yeah. you that is the donald people are people are saying yeah people are saying <laughs> people are saying this guy's the biggest racist <laughs> yeah i mean like i don't know who taught journalism at alabama but they did a bad job because obviously that violates like journalistic ethics 101, especially when I worked hard to be transparent with this kid, right? That's what was, you know, vexing about it is I was trying to be kind and helpful and he did not return me. Like, I, I don't care if he criticizes me, but at least be fair about it. Anyway, it's that article that sparked this because somehow so, somebody must have sent it to my bosses at Marietta because I was at lunch, like, you know, maybe a week later, and somebody brought it to my attention that people had been talking about this paper article, which, you know, I can understand. I can understand that if you're the provost at Marietta, you don't want to see an article about one of your professors like that. So, okay, I understand that. So I had to meet with my provost, did. That first time I met with my provost, it was, it was a good conversation, in fact. Um, she seemed committed to academic freedom. I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to talk about these things. I feel as though it's my intellectual responsibility. I always do so in a judicious and prudential manner. I don't insult people. You know, you can look through my Twitter. I have, I don't know what I had at the time, maybe 10,000 tweets. I'm like, I've never personally insulted somebody. I don't resort to ad hominem attacks and I'm always cautious about this. So fine. So I thought, oh, okay, like that was actually good. It was actually kind of good that I had to face this uh, problem and that it was brought to the attention of my provost and we got over it. So that's what gave me this false sense of security. But then somebody pseudonymous, I, I can't remember what name he was using, clearly a mentally, like, like legitimately mentally deranged person, began emailing everybody in the department the president of the college and the provost making wild accusations about me, mendacious accusations. Now, some of the claims in the emails were true, like it cited some of my articles that I had written about human variation, but some of them were outlandish. Like it said, I they were going to reveal that I had been advising some like Ku Klux Klan member or some white nat, you know, just, I'm like, okay, if, if you think no, I have been, then, then yeah, I'm like, then, you know, divulge the email that you claim you have or the evidence. But so I thought, 
well, this guy is so clearly mentally unhinged, like nobody's going to take this that seriously. Much to my surprise and chagrin, they took it very seriously. And in fact, for whatever reason, this one really irked my uh, the head of the department. I mean, she was outraged by this. She was especially outraged by this one tweet. And I, I can't remember exactly what it said. Now, it was a it was a poorly worded tweet that I had deleted after an hour because people were misinterpreting it. So I was like, like, I don't usually delete tweets if I stand by them, but I could see that it was clumsily worded, which happens from time to time. Right. And I was like, well, I don't want people misinterpreting this. That's not what I meant. So I deleted it. Maybe in retrospect, I shouldn't have deleted it because it almost was like a, a sign of a sense of culpability, which I, I I don't think I was culpable for this, but whatever. But she was absolutely irate about that. And she was like texting or like, uh, yeah, texting me on my phone and like just very irritated with me. And I, I was even trying to explain, I was like, that's not what that meant. And, you know, to no avail. So I was like, okay, wow, they're... they're <laughs> <laughs> they're really irritated about this. This might actually be a problem. Um, but okay, I talked a little bit through that. And then I had another meeting with the boss. And I figured this one would be more unpleasant, right? Like if you wind up in your in the boss's office twice in the span of like three or four months for supposed thought crimes, you know, things aren't going to go as well the second time. And they didn't. They like it was. It was a weird, uh, you know, they were like, oh, because what I had said in my tweet, I mean, they were irritated about other things, but I think the tweet was the one that irritated them the most was something along the lines of like, if we don't figure out a place for every type of person in our society for this genetic variation it will be torn apart like a tree, you know, ruined from the inside by parasites. Now, what I meant was, I thought, clear, which is like, there'll be this, if it was essentially building from Murray's coming apart and the idea that we have to work out a society in which people who are not 120 IQ can flourish and feel as though they're productive members of society, and I was just trying to make a colorful simile. <laughs> the, the, but what happened, of course, people, I think you have to be willfully doing this, but they were saying, well, who's the parasite in this? Oh, mm -hmm. this is an anti, they, they accused me. So what they said in this, when I was meeting with my boss is that it was an anti-Semitic and an anti-Black trope to call people parasites. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm not even calling people parasites. I'm comparing what would happen here to a tree getting gutted by parasites. I mean, it's called poetry. <laughs> but, but then they would just say, then they would just say, and who wrote poetry? And they'd say Nazis. Straight. White you know who males. else liked poetry? Heinrich Himmler. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He liked poetry. And they go, like, like the case is, uh, is uh, rest my case. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. So they're obviously uh, they're chastising me. Um, and it, here, the most insulting thing about all of it was they made this. They, they were claiming that if I had a female or 
a person of color, as they called it, I don't know how I feel about that term, but that's what they called it, that I couldn't grade the person's work. They would have to have somebody else grade it because apparently their suggestion was I couldn't be fair because I accept, you know, uh, what all experts accept, which is that there is IQ variation among groups. Again, that I mean, the, the only debate is about the causes. But because I accept this fact and I'm honest about it, they were like, you can't grade these papers fairly, which I found, you know. But the woman uh, thing's interesting. Would, 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 they, would the objection there? I don't. The, but, but the person of color would be, oh, he's a phrenologist. But the second, but right. the woman, would, would that be, oh, that you're sort of a Mar- women are from Mars. <laughs> so women from Venus, men are from Mars sort of thinker? Is that why? It's yeah, it is weird. I got this sense that the head of my department had this like suspicion that I was a misogynist for some reason. I have no, I don't know if she just associated conservatism with misogyny, uh, because like for example, when I did, when I did my class on human nature. Uh, or no, maybe it was just a, it was a psychology class. I had a bunch of like um, he- heroes of psychology, as it were, like pictures on my um, syllabus, and she scolded me because there weren't any women on it. Because you know it was like Freud, Skinner, William James, and and like apparently I didn't put women on it, and I maybe she thought that was evidence of my hidden misogyny. I don't know. So I, I think it was just. My interpretation of that was it was actually meant to insult me. Like they wanted me to feel humiliated that they were telling me they couldn't even trust me to grade these people's papers. Um, but I did, I, I, I'm proud of the fact that, because I'm not, I, I don't have a problem uh, with people hating me at all, obviously. I'm not very good at confrontation, especially in person, but I was like, I I said to the head of the department after the meeting, I was like, let's just talk and hash this out. And when we talked, I was like, look, you don't like me. That's fine. I don't care. You don't need to like me, (laughs) but you can't say some of these things to me. And let's just work this out. Don't talk behind my back, whatever. Let's just like hash this out. And I actually thought we had hashed it out. And maybe maybe we did. Because when I got fired, which was roughly like a month or two after this, I got fired. Um, My understanding from information is that all of the professors in the department voted against fired me. Even the head of my department voted against fired me. So this came down probably from the president, but it was the provost who fired me. Like she was the one who walked in and just said I was fired. So maybe we had kind of hashed out our differences. I mean, I, I know she didn't like me, which is, you know, again, it's like, whatever you work with people you don't like. Sometimes that happens. I don't, before it's we not move a big on I, 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 into the into the meat of uh, these I, these ideas, uh, I just I'm just fascinated by when you said you, you don't like me. Did did she remain <laughs> did she remain silent or did she go? No, she what did. Are you talk, what are you talking she, about? She, she essentially took it 
um, yeah, like made it clear she's not my biggest fan. <laughs> when she didn't like confirm it, but you know, yeah, it, it was pretty funny. But say, I will oh, say, no, I no. actually I say that I recorded this. Um, did I record this or did I just get her to say it? Because after I got fired, I was of course contemplating my options, and I I remember I had a meeting with her in her office and. I did get her to say that I was very good at my job and that the firing was not about what I had done at work. So, so like she admitted whatever her feelings about me, that I was good at my job and that the firing was for extracurricular activities as it were. It's just personal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But Bo, Bo, did it ever, did it ever cross your mind to kind of take, take a legal path and try and, It did. It did cross my mind. And in fact, I was in contact with FIRE, which is, um, I always forget what the acronym stands for, or maybe I never knew. I just think of it as the Academic Freedom Law Team. I actually was in contact with them quite early on. I was in contact with them the first time I got sent to my uh, my boss's office. And the second, after I got fired, I talked to them again. And I actually had a phone call with a lawyer. They, they seem to suggest that the, the path to a lawsuit was not going to be a straightforward one, at least, right? It, it was strewn with obstacles, as it were. And I wanted to write about my experience. Maybe in retrospect, that was a mistake. I don't know. But like, I really did. I, I wanted, I didn't want Marietta to, sorry, <laughs> I don't like to even name the university, but you already named it anyway. So I didn't want them to get away with it because what happens is they fire you. And then if you go down the the path of pursuing a lawsuit, usually you sign some sort of non-disclosure agreement, which essentially, yeah, you get some money from them, but it lets them off the hook in a way. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted people to know that Not just because of me. Like, I honestly, yeah, it was unfair to me, I think. And I I was, you know, that obviously irritated me. But it was more about the principle that this podunk college could do this to somebody who was obviously highly qualified to teach there. That, That was what I was concerned about. And of course, that was happening at other places. And it only accelerated after the death of Floyd. So... I wanted to write about it. I didn't want to let them off the hook. It wasn't personal. I didn't want to like throw any particular individual under the bus there. It was more institutional. So maybe just before we leave leave this chapter in, in our podcast, uh, what time frame are we looking at here? Was this a, a, a few years ago? It was, it was before George Floyd? Is that? It was before George Floyd. Yeah, it was. Um, let me see if I can remember these. So George Floyd was in 2020 it was months before that it because it was it was right as covid all of the covid stuff was taking off well maybe let's get into a few of a few of your uh or what people would view as controversial ideas like we got into this with your colleague jonathan anomaly when he was on the show uh, you know it uh, it seems there are there is a scientific consensus that there are measurable differences across populations can you step us through that yeah, so let's just take IQ because I think that's the best 
like the, the the best construct to examine because it's the easiest to measure in some sense. IQ, I mean, I, mean, I don't want, we don't need to get into the details of IQ. Let's say people debate about how, is it intelligence? Should we use the term intelligence? Should we just use the term IQ? I don't really care about that. I will call it intelligence. <laughs> so cognitive ability or intelligence varies across human populations as measured by uh, not only IQ tests, but also any kind of standardized test that that taps into cognitive ability, SATs, GREs, ACTs, etc. Anytime you do a test that somehow taps into mental abilities, you find these differences. The differences are such that East Asians or Northeast Asians, to be more specific, generally score, you know, Japanese, Chinese, generally score about 105 or so on, on this. And, and the IQ test is normed. We don't need to get into that. But like 105, Europeans about 100, uh, Hispanics, because that's Hispanics is a hard group because the admixture rates are different across Hispanic populations. But Hispanics, let's say somewhere about 93, and then uh, blacks or African Americans about eighty five. Now, when you look at Sub Saharan African IQs, they're much lower. Let's say seventy to eighty, depending on whose estimate we take. Like Wickert's in the, in the serious scholarship, there's a lot of debate about what the actual IQ is. Reinderman argued that it was roughly seventy five for Sub Saharan Africa. Wickert's argued it was more like eighty two, eighty three. Um, it doesn't really matter. It, I think 75 is the most like sort of prudent uh, hypothesis at this point. And then, of course, I would update as more data comes in or as more data come in. But uh, I, I'm, I don't talk as much or very much about the sub-Saharan IQ because it is such a controversial topic and because there are some legitimate criticisms about the measure, is there measurement invariant? You get into like these complicated psychometric debates, but like I think they're reasonable enough that I tend to be cautious about that. I think talking about group differences inside a Western society, it, I'm much more comfortable doing that. And there are, these differences are not disputed. I think that's an important thing to say to start any kind of conversation like this, because you know, if you, if you look at like, say, Twitter discourse or something, many people accuse those who merely state this fact of being racist. And this is a fact. I mean, it's not disputed in the mainstream textbooks. Macintosh, Hunt, now Richard Harris, the author of the, the Hunt intelligence textbook, it's been updated. They, they will all, they, they say, there is a roughly 15-point gap. There is not debate about that. So I guess, I guess my question is, like, we, we know this information, but, th but then what? You know, I mean, how is it useful and, and what's the point in even, in even studying this? Like, I, think, I think I heard back in the day Sam Harris talking to uh, Charles Murray about yes. this, and it was a very long discussion, but, but one, yes. of, one of his points, one of Sam Harris's points was like, yeah, but so what? You know, what's the point in studying this? What's the point in even knowing this? I find Sam Harris, Harris's insouciance about this bizarre. And in, I, I mean, in fact, maybe it's not even insouciance because in fact, he criticizes, he, you know, he, I, I've heard him call it like 
like race porn or race fetishism. And this is coming from a, <laughs> just, right? This is to, coming. He's just trying to bring the, the, the you know, the Ted hate down on the discourse, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, right? And it's like, this is coming from a person who used to write incessantly about how dangerous Islam was and accused people of being uh, deterred by white guilt. And now he's like, why would you obsess over this 15 point IQ gap? What I would say, I, I have two answers to that. One is it's important as a curious human who cares about human evolution to understand human variation. One of the basic principles of natural selection is variation, right? You have variation, you have differential selection, you have variation among individuals. That is the grist for the mill of evolution. You also have variation between sexes, which is quite interesting, and people write books about it and talk about it. I don't think Sam Harris would, would you know, uh, be piqued if we talked about sex differences. There are also human population differences, obvious differences in phenotypes. I mean, if you look at skin color or hair texture or face structure, they're obviously different. People aren't inventing these differences, right? They're quite evident. So if you're a curious person who cares about human evolution and human evolutionary psychology, you have to address human variation, honestly. You simply cannot understand the world if you don't do that. I mean, it would be like somebody saying, yeah, I study dogs, but I refuse to look at breed differences. Why would I do that? Like, what what could we possibly gain from looking at the behavior of pit bulls and comparing it to Yorkshires? You know, it's just, it's, it's bizarre to me. So I think an intellectually honest and curious person should care about it. Now, I'm not saying you need to uh, read about it incessantly. There are many interesting topics in human evolutionary psychology and evolutionary analysis, that happens just to be one of them. The, I think the more sort of pressing reason, especially now in, in sort of 2023, is that in my view, the alternative to talking honestly about these differences is, is deferring to a divisive and erroneous narrative that claims that all social disparities are caused by the unique iniquity of white people, the, the sort of white racism or structural racism. And if you don't have an answer for why are there these disparities, because I think it's a very legitimate question. Like, look, we have all of these outcome disparities. Blacks are incarcerated at a much higher rate. They're not as represented as in STEM fields. They don't make, their incomes are lower. Their wealth is lower. It's fair to point to those if you care about justice. We need an answer for that. And it, what Harris is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of bludgeoning Harris here. I don't mean to. Uh, I, I, I'm Rich, using him okay. as, you know, he's like a stand-in <laughs> at this point for those who are general. He, he, it points out something, right? Which is even people who are, are generally tenacious at pursuing the truth blink in the face of this one and they make all of these excuses and then they denigrate people who are interested in it so that's why i'm using harris if we don't forward an answer to this legitimate question 
I just don't see a way to defeat these narratives. Like, yeah, here's what conservatives will do in the United States. I, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but in the United States, conservatives will often resort to some kind of cultural explanation. Oh, well, it's pervasive fatherlessness. It's, uh, you know, this culture that encourages violence and discourages study. But of course, that just pushes the question back another step, because then, uh, you know, as anybody who's talked to kids would know, they'll ask the next question, which is, well, yeah, what causes that? So like, if you don't have, so, well, there's more fatherlessness. Well, what causes the, the greater fatherlessness? And at some point, I think to many people, the racism explanation seems plausible because they're like, well, what else would explain that? Why would this group create a culture that is deleterious if not for the racism of another group of people? It just doesn't make sense to them. So I think to combat that, we have to be honest about reality. We have to be honest that just as if you have competitions that are based on upper body strength, you will not have equal representation among men and women. So too, if you have uh, you, you know, competitions based on intellectual ability, you will not have equal representation among whites and blacks. Now that might sound, I, I don't know, it might sound insulting or derogatory, but it's not. It's just accepting and talking about reality. That doesn't mean there aren't brilliant African-Americans, obviously. We're talking about bell curves. Thomas Sowell is one of the most brilliant thinkers in the world, like legitimately a brilliant human being, obviously. And there are obviously uh, white people who are not particularly intelligent. Mm. But on average, the way that these distributions play out, you will just have underrepresentation naturally. Now, that that should be the baseline of our discourse because these facts are not disputed in the literature. The only dispute, again, is what is the cause of the difference in the trait. So I, I, I just, I, I honestly actually am to the point where I find this approach to the topic baffling that these people, they seem to want to have some kind of detente with the progressive narrative or, or, or with the progressive sensibility, like the, the, the progressive dogma that all groups are roughly the same. They want to just like, okay, let's, let's accept that and then move to another explanation if we can. And I, I just think that's a serious strategic mistake. So do you think that the, the woke worldview, if, if, you know, if we use that term, I hate the term woke, but it's, it, I guess it's useful. But, you know, do you think that that is firmly rooted in the blank slate theory of human biology? I mean, is that where we can sort of trace the whole woke movement? So I, I think that it, it's more accurate to call it, this is not a felicitous uh, term, I will admit, but it's one that I think is more accurate, which is it's a kind of selective blank slateism. Because people who are woke, and I, I agree with you, I don't necessarily like the term, but I've found that it's virtually indispensable. Uh, people who are woke will accept, for example, that homosexuality is genetic. In fact, they will insist upon it. So they're not totally uh, blank slateist. What they are is they're, they, they believe that human populations have equal talents and traits, essentially. Um, and similar proclivities, and that the only 
cause of disparities must be some kind of invidious discrimination. Now, getting to the blank slate, it's interesting, you know, Pinker's book, which I actually find, uh, people laud it, and, and I understand why, I actually find it a bit disappointing precisely because it doesn't really cover race, which in my view is the most important topic about which blank slateism is pervasive and disfigures discourse. But I, I don't actually think individual that, that progressives are, I mean, they do deny individual differences. I, I don't, I don't want to say they don't, because you can see like what happened with um, Paige Hardin's books, the book, The Genetic Lottery. I, I was surprised at the force <laughs> of some of the attacks on her from the left. So there is some denialism of individual differences, certainly, but I, I, I wouldn't, I'd hesitate to call it blank slateism. I, I would call it selective blank slateism. Oh, I got a, I got a question that occurred to me while you're talking. There, we, we've got uh, a lot of uh, you know, sort of feminists uh, of various kinds that, that listen to our program uh, for some of our some of our other guests, and and they'll be, um, I'll be interested to hear what they think of some of the things you have to say. But, but also maybe just the this, if if you believe in such a thing, the the sane left and and feminists, how how can they use in in the world you're picturing of this future where we embrace, um, you know, the reality of genetics? How can how can how how could you foresee these groups of people, uh, you know, use using this uh, for good or fitting it into their worldview? Yeah, th- I mean, this is something that I I really lament because I I describe myself as a conservative because I'm socially conservative now. And, th- and that is something I've changed my mind about across time. Like I, I was much more socially progressive when I was younger. However, I still have sympathies with like what you might call the old school left. Even the Bernie Sanders left before he sort of uh, was regenerated and turned into a woke because you had to by 2020. But the more economically oriented left and the, even even the feminist left, especially like say first wave feminism, when you get to second wave feminism and then especially third wave feminism, I think things go downhill pretty quickly. But, but one of the things I lament is that there isn't much of a movement on the left taking human variation seriously. And I think that is a mistake because I think there is a perfectly consistent and coherent leftist political ideology that takes these differences for granted and then attempts to forward political policies based on them that are different from the policies conservatives would forward or promulgate. Um, And feminism is a good example of this. So there is something called difference feminism. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on feminism, but I have read some of the literature because I'm interested in difference feminism, which is a form of feminism that argues that we actually need to take the differences seriously and to laud and celebrate women precisely as women. And the argument there is what we would like New York Times feminism, let's call it, what's pretty much, you know, mainstream modern elite feminism. (laughs) in fact, measures women on a scale designed for men. And inevitably, they will 
fall short on that scale, or they will, I guess, way less to not, you know, to keep the metaphor. <laughs> they will not be, I mean, they will always fail if the competition is males are the most valuable thing to society and whatever is most like males are also, that is valuable. Women can't compete there because men are better at being men than women are. And I'll give you a specific examples of this. I, I mean, the, added, the, the weird um, view that, you know what's really feminist? For women to have casual sex. Like there's this sort of attitude in that movement that women can have casual sex too. And it sh there shouldn't be this double standard uh, that derogates women who have a lot of sex partners. They should be allowed to do that. Now, that is... <laughs> It is based on a, a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. I, I mean, I'm not saying we should encourage males in their pursuit of sexual variety, but there are myriad reasons to believe that men desire sexual variety more than women do and are more satisfied with the experience. They're, they're more able to have a, an anonymous or semi-anonymous sexual encounter and be happy about it than women are. And encouraging women to pursue that strategy is an enormous mistake because and it women, actually... No woman, that just occurred to me, Bo, not, a woman did not invent the glory hole. Yeah, I, I, I would find it... <laughs> if you told me a woman invented that, I would be absolutely shocked. <laughs> I mean, I believe women can do anything, but I don't think that's what they did, whereas I, I can... Probably picture the guy who did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it. And, you, you know, you can look at this when you look at um, patterns of homosexual behavior, because you can look at like what happens when you get the male sexual appetite and both of the partners are men. Yes. Well, we can see. I mean, there you is Lori Hall. <laughs> yeah, you get much, much more promiscuity. I mean, I, I'm not. You know, no, this isn't. You know, it's not meant to be pejorative against homosexual men. No, I'm male just pointing sexuality out, is what it is. Th this it's, is male sexuality. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like we, we got this you, when we were watching um, Cruisin'. We did we did a, a, a series of films recently. Oh which, wow! Yeah, that Cruising. is a weird film. <laughs> we watched uh, Stranger Stranger by the Lake and uh, another couple of films, and they were all. And I was just we were surrounded, and I was like convinced that male sexuality when. Um, when heaped upon male sexuality is a has a very particular uh, particular brand, you know, grimy, it, it is, refused, it is. focused, yes. uh, not much <laughs> chat, all of that. Yeah, w William Friedkin's Cruising, starring Al Pacino, and one of his most bizarre performances. <laughs> it, it, I have to say, just as an aside. <laughs> I quite admire the film, although it's not pleasant to watch. It's actually like a really good and interesting yes. ultra film almost. But yes, I, I do. So that's just one example. I mean, I, I, I often use this, um, I, I pose this question to my wife. I say, what would be considered more feminist, by a, a feminist movie by the New York Times? One in which a woman who was sexually assaulted pursues revenge by shooting off the genitals of men with a shotgun. That's movie one. Or movie two, a happy and fulfilled housewife makes great meals for her husband. Now, we know the answer. 
The New York Times would write this glowing review praising this subversive feminist movie in which male genitalia are being blown off while uh, absolutely you know, annihilating this staid uh, uh, misogynist film in which a woman finds happiness and satisfaction in a relationship. <laughs> I think that is a serious mistake. And I think also what is happening here is an anomalous set subset of women, th- these very competitive uh, women who are pursuing intellectual and social status in academia and journalism. I'm, I, I don't want to uh, degrade these women. They should be allowed to pursue this. But what happens is they take their anomalous traits and they apply them to all women. They, they think that all women would be happier if they could pursue that kind of a lifestyle. And in fact, I see no evidence for that. None. I, I mean, I think um, it seems to me Within reason, traditional sex roles did a pretty good job of steering men and women into the right life patterns. They can be too rigid, they can be coercive, and and we need to negotiate that as a small L liberal society. But I think attempting to obliterate those sex roles, as second and third wave feminism do, is an enormous mistake. And I, and I think evolutionary psychology, a full understanding and appreciation of the evolution of human differences, in, the, in this case, differences between men and women, is important for this. Well, both, both of those imaginary films you came up with actually exist. The first one is I Spit on Your Grave, and the second one is Overboard, starring Goldie Horn and, and uh, uh, Kurt, Russell. Kurt Russell. Um and I, th- I think I can bet that women will love watching Overboard and hate watching I Spit on Your Grave. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I Spit on Your Grave, wow, what a disturbing film, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. I didn't actually – Overboard, I, I've, it's been so long since I've seen it that I can't even comment on it. I Spit on Your Grave will haunt me for my life. I mean, it's a truly disturbing film. But yeah, you're right. It actually is that. And – I, I think there was another, was there a film with Carrie Mulligan in which she attempts to get revenge on men? Promising I, I mean, Young Woman? Yeah. That was a snooze fest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, le- it wasn't like, I'm an expert on this genre, okay, Bo? The Rape Revenge film is a, a it's a, a very specific thing and that, that Promising Young Woman was, it was a, 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 an offence. It, it was the dull, dull for it. was. <laughs> they didn't give me any of the stuff yeah. I wanted. But, but I, I mean, the, this is so like I care about art, and I and I've come to the view art, including obviously like novels, poetry, but also f- cinema, which I think is the most powerful, most potent art form. Um, I've come to the conclusion that this is something that twenty-five-year-old me would have despised, uh, but that. Morality is an essential part of storytelling. That, that's not to, I mean, I like plenty of films whose moral message I strongly disagree with, but I do think the moral of a film or a story is part of the reason we're so drawn to these, right? I mean, we care because they're also providing us with lessons for life, and that's important. And I, do, I find it a, a bit appalling that you can't get that kind of positive 
uh, message of like, you know, you can find fulfillment in mothering and being a good wife because most women do. Let's, I, I mean, let's be honest about that. I, I think probably the majority of women find that more satisfying than pursuing a lonely life in a New York apartment, trying to be some successful journalist. Well, we've seen the second series of that. Uh, it's, uh, what's the second one? What's the sex in the city follow-up called? Oh, it's, it's, uh, and just, just like, like that. that just like that. I, I refuse to, I, I mean, the reviews were, I, I don't know if you saw, I, I watched, honestly, Sex in the City, the second movie was one of, I mean, the first one was abysmal, but the second one was legitimately one of the worst movies I've ever watched. And, and, it's, and it's like one of those movies that's so bad, but it's not redeemed by being fun because it's terrible the way like Troll 2 or Room, those mm -hmm. are like entertaining to watch because they're so bad they're kind of fun sex in the city too was just bad bad and i hear the show is horrible i mean i've seen some clips from it i'm just like yeah i'm i'm not interested in yeah that. I've, I've, my, my wife's is, is watching it and i've seen a few episodes it is it's very bad and the worst thing about it i think is that it it, it betrays some of the characters from the original show really i mean they're, they're getting particularly miranda the character miranda like she's just a, a total buffoon really in this new series whereas before isn't she dating a non-binary yes she, she becomes yeah she before becomes she fake. was yeah like the sharp uh professional woman right yes yes yeah yeah that's how i picture her at least from this from the original series which yes, was yeah. you know mediocre at best but at least watchable mm. Yeah, well, now she's sort of tripping over herself not to offend black people. And that's she that's what I she doesn't thought. know what to say about non-binary. You know, oh, is that what I'm supposed to call you? Oh, is it you know, they, they, I mean, we're off on a tangent, but don't you think that those ladies, or when they were in that original show, they were master and commander. They might have been having, uh, you know, uh, scrapes and and getting into conundrums, but they were they were leading the culture in what they were talking about. They were in command of this and that. And then in this new one, it sounds like they are really behind well they don't they think they think they're behind when really they should be leading again and they should be like i don't know be like um uh john mcclain in one of those later ones where he's just like you know he still thinks he's wicked and he just thinks that young people suck you know like he should just say john mcclain from die hard well <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah, so I like it. <laughs> but, you know, can can we just talk about Die Hard and Clint Eastwood? And we'll, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, you, you, that that is an excellent point. That the, you're right. The the first, I think it went five seasons, if I recall correctly. The the the, the first run of Sex in the City, these women were confident professional women, and they were. You're right. They were sort of like at the vanguard. They were confident about their place in the world, and it was this bold. I don't necessarily agree with the statement the, the series was making, but it was confident about what it was attempting to achieve, and it used these women to do it. In the later incarnation, they're bumbling, and they have to be mortified and humiliated by the woke to understand that actually they're not at the vanguard of society, right? They're, they're totally confused and perplexed individuals who have to learn to pray appropriately and to genuflect before the god of wokeness. They need to be uh, handmaidens to the world. Yeah, 
weird. You're right. That is interesting. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, Sex in the City, by the way, we can use this because this is a good example, I think, of, you know, the the. now I don't have a problem with depicting professional women, of course, and like some women do want to pr- pursue a professional career, and that is absolutely fine. But the fact that that would be considered, oh, like that was great feminism, sex in the city, where you had these independent women, they didn't need men. Uh, Samantha, if she wanted to have random sex, good for her. Why do the men only get to have the fun? And in fact, it was sort of seen as a betrayal of the characters that they eventually got into. They all became sort of quasi-monogamous, at least. Even Samantha tried it for a while. Um, I feel as though I'm exposing too much about myself since I saw the whole. <laughs> we all watched it. We watched. We, yeah, we, we all watched. We watched it, it and we pretended we didn't. Yeah. We watched yes. it and we were like, and you know, it was it was an event, and and I felt at the time it was it was like the internet was you know was still pretty young, and um, it was an exciting series, and it was it was yeah, it was sexy and funny and inch slick, and also we come from a boring part of Australia. So we got to look at America and go, oh, wow, so cool. New York City. May I recommend, instead of watching Sex in the City, watch The Wire, because that, that is actually, you know, like a great, well, great filmmaking, whereas, you know, Sex in the City is, I don't know, pretty disposable at this point. But This is true. Well, uh, look, uh, there's a million things we could, we could talk about, but I, we'd, I've, this is just proven that we need to get you back, like, I'm talking like real soon to talk to to get into actual things because we've we've run out of time. <laughs> but 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 uh, but I but um I wanted to give you the final word for today. We're definitely going to next time. I think we we want to really get into you know diversity and immigration and some of the things that um you've covered there. But um you know you are in a unique position to talk about identity politics, uh, the wave that we've seen over the past decade because um. You know, because of your experience, uh, teacher, you were really there at, at at you know at the coalface when you when you got fired, and then you you know joined uh, you started writing for Quillette, which I would which in the history of woke will be seen as as there you know uh, chronicling this 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 nightmare. Uh, and but how would you describe the changes in the phenomenon? It's it's hard to put into words uh, because I I just feel like we are really in a different epoch now since 2016 2017 for example in terms of our ability to discuss contentious topics now just some key words like you know things have changed and shifted censorship race and gender cancellations tribalism we've got some limited pushback uh here and there uh but where were we where are we and and where do you think we're going yeah, so I, I started writing about human variation specifically in like 2014, and it was obviously quite a taboo topic even at that time. Um, so I don't think we should, we shouldn't pretend that those were the halcyon days of free speech and respectful debate. Nevertheless, it certainly it, it has accelerated uh, uh, toward um, fractiousness and increasing polarization on these topics. I think that's what's happened, really, is that the left has become more and more committed to this progressive, illiberal worldview. 
And obviously, I mean, there are plenty of problems with the right in the United States too. I don't, I don't want to uh, leave them out of the of legitimate or leave legitimate criticism of them out of this story. But because of that, the, the, the left, it became aware of its power. And I think this is important in academia too. They, realized that they didn't need to debate these views anymore. They could simply suppress them. They could uh, assail the people who forwarded the views and impugn their character to such a degree that nobody would take the views seriously. And that's what I, I, I mean, but that was happening to be fair since the late 60s, say when Arthur Jensen was writing about this. I mean, he was getting death threats. So it wasn't like a glorious you know, free speech on the campus. wasn't it, it wasn't without its opponents and enemies. Nevertheless, I mean, he could still get on the Donahue show. Can you imagine today a mainstream television talk host having somebody who had those views on for a respectful, reasonable conversation, even if they strongly disagreed with them. I mean, that would just never well, Dr. happen. Dr. Phil, weirdly, has trotted out all these culture warriors in the waning days. He's been cancelled, I think. So, like, like The show has been cancelled, not him. And he's he, like, he's, he's just had all these these culture warriors on there and to talk about trans and stuff. But he's mm, done it. I yeah. feel he's done it like, you know, when he's already canned. Like he didn't do it at the height of his – it wasn't like in the year 2002. Dr. Phil. Oh yeah, I, I don't. I, Not like 2002, and he's gotten like. I find you know, Dr. Phil abhorrent, so I don't pay any attention. <laughs> he's enough. like one of the worst kinds of charlatan. <laughs> he, he, he gave us the the I forget the girl's name. The Cash Me Outside, how about that girl who became a millionaire, like quite <laughs> really? legitimately from the Dr. Phil show. And if you I don't, remember the, know I remember the, the tagline. Um, I never, but I fought the urge to to type it into Google every time I heard it stronger and better human than I am because I could not resist my urge to figure <laughs> that one out. I've, I've so, drunk so, from the, from the, the, the you know, supped from the, de the devil's teat many times. Yeah, <laughs> so, but, but I would say, I, I guess like I, my views of the history of this are complicated and I'd have to contemplate it and probably I'd make some erroneous assertions. What I can say, and this I want to end on a positive note, and I hope that I can come on and just talk diehard for two hours. But on a positive note, I think because the polarization is increasing further, and because Elon bought Twitter, and there's a more there is a more open atmosphere on Twitter, which I think is also increasing polarization. Now, in some ways, that's bad because it increases animosity between two sides. It also opens up niches for dissidents and and i think the the uh, these unorthodox positions are actually becoming more popular and they have more champions than they used to i mean i when i joined aporia i thought okay well we're gonna have to be very very cautious here writing about these topics and i i don't know if this is gonna work there's a reason all other magazines that want to be somewhat respectable avoid them so we we approach this, you know, as a as a, a person would, you know, dipping your dipping your feet in the water. But it turned out the water wasn't that bad. I thought it would be boiling, and it's tepid. You know, yeah, of course you you get fire and people 
know, insult your character. But there's a lot of desire for this kind of candid conversation. I'll give you an example. I mean, this is, of course, hyper online, but it's at least indicative of something. I wrote a piece on why we should talk about IQ differences. And it was an unapologetic defense of just being honest about this. I was surprised, and I will say heartened, that it had, I don't know, over 200 retweets, well well over 200. And I was thinking maybe it'd get like 10 or 15. Because back in the day, I I, I remember I, I would, you know, if you wrote something about wokeism's bad, and you were incredibly fiery about it, you would get many retweets. But the second you started to talk about IQ differences, people were like, no, 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 no. I'm, <laughs> even yeah. if you know they agreed with you privately, they didn't want to retweet that because they didn't want the guilt by association. I, I think the, the demand for that and for honesty about these things is increasing. Now, I, I think there's a potential danger, and this I take seriously, that there are a lot of disgruntled, rightfully disgruntled, by the way, uh, especially young men who feel they've been lied to about these topics and their anger does not always come out in the most productive way. And they become attracted to what I would consider deleterious ideologies because at least they're saying F you to these elite liars who have told them everybody's the same, you can't talk about these things. And when they look at the literature and they have the epiphany, as it were, that like, wait a second, I've been lied to. There, there is a tendency, and I think it's a healthy tendency in some ways, to lash out and, and to reject the status quo. And then you tend to go too far. Like, I don't know what your religious views are, but I remember when I lost belief in God, at least as like the, the metaphysical Christian God, you know, I was, I, I, I honestly was apoplectic. I, I, I couldn't believe that people had foisted this monstrosity, this metaphysical monstrosity upon me, and I had accepted it. And it, it, it made me, I was never quite a missionary for atheism, but I was much more enthusiastic about it because I was so irritated that people had lied to me. And I think that's the problem. So what I want to do and what I hope happens here is that we can mainstream, I I don't think the president needs to talk about this or something, but responsible intellectuals should talk about this. It should be mainstreamed so that you don't have this sort of... uh, subterranean rage and these kind of like weird, even quasi-fascistic politics, uh, you know, coming up. The Morlocks. I, I pictured the Morlocks in that uh, the time machine. <laughs> well, Bo, we are unfortunately out of time, but we do have a quick question that we ask all of our guests, and that's, uh, that's uh, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, that is actually a great question. So I am reading uh, two things. I'm reading um, I.A. Richard's book on literary criticism, because believe it or not, like I care more about literature than like race or anything like that. So I.A. Richard's book story. on um, just literary criticism. <laughs> 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 literary criticism. And I'm, I just got Richard Hire's 
new edition of the Earl Hunt, Hunt, Earl Hunt, excuse me, textbook on intelligence. And I'm also reading that um, and it's absolutely delightful. Absolutely fantastic. We always love to hear people's recommendations. No one ever says the same two books ever. Mm you know and it just blows our mind and and so yeah um or and uh, one day we should do a big compilation of everyone's recommendations that just would that, be good yeah, yeah i think we should do that mm. so by where can people find you online how can people follow your work i i don't remember here's what they can do forget about me follow aporia support aporia because that's that's what we're trying to build exactly what i've been talking about a place for judicious and, and responsible conversation about these topics at Aporia. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. Well, Bo, I think we're going to, if you, if you don't mind, I feel like you should come back in, in a few weeks and we should. Yeah, we of should course. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to. There's too much to cover. Mm. Well, Die Hard will take up, you know, most of the next. <laughs> yeah, the next that's episode. two hours. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Bo. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.